Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission for this podcast is to ask chief business officers to reflect on their careers, share personal examples of the ways they have navigated challenging situations, and offer some lessons that they've learned from their experience as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for being here today. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and it is my great pleasure to be joined today by David English, Vice President for Finance and Management at Denison University. Welcome, David. Well, thank you, Megan. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you today. Well, we're going to jump right into the good stuff in this interview, David. So would you just start off by sharing what issue you think is most going to impact the way colleges and universities conduct business in the next 10 years? I know it's a softball question, but do your best. (laughs) That's a great question. And my answer would actually change if you extended it to like 50 years rather than 10. Oh, interesting. For for 10 years, I'd like to say it's two things. I, I, I think the first is we need to change our economic model, except for the very, very top schools. We have few families who are willing and able to pay more. Um, according to the last Moody's report I read, I'm, I'm actually geeky and I try and read those, over half of private schools will see net tuition revenue grow by less than 3% and, and might even shrink. And I work at a small school and their forecast is that the landscape's even more grim. They predict that over half the schools will see expen- revenue grow by less than 1%. That's almost certainly below our expense growth, unless you're making big cuts in your expense categories and expense structure. Some some of this is a legacy from competing on amenities. For the oh, 20 years before 20, 2008, industry-wide, we, we were largely able to increase amenities and pass those on. For the last 10 years, though, we've been laboring under these cost structures. And now we're, I know many schools have to cut back in order to just continue to pay for the essential costs. At the same time, uh, we face more expectations from our families and students. Uh, we want to continue to offer services and programs that support them, everything from mental health to career preparation. And we have to find more efficient ways to fund those services or amenities, or we have to cut some or both. And I think the, the next thing that will impact us is our focus and relevance. I suspect too many colleges have pursued just growth as a way to generate revenue, but it's been trying to be all things to all people. And that's much more expensive than just focusing on a few marquee programs. Families are really skeptical about the value of higher education right now. And marquee, a few marquee programs help demonstrate value rather than just a broad portfolio. Particularly if we're able to show that those marquee programs are relevant to the postgraduate needs of students. I work at a liberal arts college and and there's a lot of skepticism about why would I want to go? And we need to be able to demonstrate that. Fabulous. Well, uh, I would love to hear your speculation on 50 years, since it sounds like you have a point of view on that as well. <laughs> well, it's, I, you know, if I could prognosticate 50 years out accurately, I'd, have, <laughs> I'd be much richer than I am. Um, I, I, I just, 50 years, I think you, you have the same issues as 10, but you'll also add in the disruption from technology. I mm. think that and we were really worried about MOOCs, but to me, the you know the MOOC craze was there was that was really no different than a videotape, and that didn't disrupt us. But I think over the next fifty years, we'll find much better ways to 
incorporate algorithms into how we teach. And so rather than just recording or broadcasting, the, the programs we have to teach students will become much more reactive to how they respond and learn individual questions. And that'll really change how we, some of our in-class opportunities or experiences for students and um, automation, automated education will make a much bigger inroad than it has. Um, I don't think we'll ever get away from the fact that what we're doing is educating largely 18 to 22 year olds and they're living beings and having them be on a campus where they interact will be really important. But I think how we deliver education will be radically changed in 50 years by technology. Of course, I, again, if I was really a, a good technologist, I'd wouldn't be a CBO, I'd you know, <laughs> be working for Elon Musk or something. I don't know. Fascinating. Well, thank you, David. How do you think that current CBOs can best prepare or develop the next generation of higher education leadership? And particularly when you consider the growing desire in the field to diversify. <laughs> so again, can I punt and say it's two things? It, it Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks. So uh, the the first one, which is minor, I, I think we need to be much more open about recruiting from outside the academy. And, mm -hmm. and I'm biased. I spent about half my career in private. Mm. And I think that um, when people come into the academy from outside, they may really need some handholding, the types of cultures we have. We're much more collaborative. I know for me, it was a big change. But I think that bring people in from the outside, they have experience in industries where there are many more sharper elbows and you're much more focused on efficiencies and assessments. And we need to incorporate some of those strategies or just, or just some diversity of thought from people who didn't grow up in the academy because we're, again, our landscape is increasingly competitive. And the second and major point, I think, is that we need to invest more in leadership training for CBOs. Um, we all tend to promote people who do the technical job really well, and then we ask them to lead a group of other people doing that job, but that leadership skill is very different than knowing what the work is. And um, we don't necessarily, as just as industry, um, even industries in the U.S., we don't necessarily invest in that training prior to promoting people up. You know, that's something I've heard before on this podcast. Have you seen that done well in at Denison or other places? We are making bigger strides in that. Uh, we. We recognize that our, if I could say we're a business, our business is intellectual property and our, our people are, what, are why students come and that we need to invest more in our, the leadership of our, of our senior leadership. And that includes me. Um, I've been to more leadership training and, and look for those opportunities. Uh, it's, and I hesitate to say, you know, pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, we do it really well. But I will say that we've, we've become much more aware that it's something we do invest more in, and we're doing that. Well, I would love for you to speak a little bit, not only to listeners that are already CBOs, but any listeners who might be considering a CBO, CBO role as their next move. What would you say are the top three skills or attributes that are most critical for CBOs in today's higher ed landscape and moving forward like you were just discussing 10 or even 50 years? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad you gave me three choices this time. <laughs> <laughs> the first, I mean, um, you know, CBOs need to understand a lot more than numbers today. And that's that's a foundational skill. But we've really evolved to where the major role is the audit and closing the books. Um, it's It's a very broad role. And first, we certainly need people who are smart and open to growth and continuous learning. Um, with a broad portfolio, you just you have many different areas and they all change a little bit. And so in aggregate, you're always 
juggling something new every single day and you need to be open to that. I think second, you, you need people who have humility. Um, you need to be able to lead from vulnerability, but you also have to be able to say that you're willing to look at other industries for how they've solved problems. I, we won't come up with every good idea first, but it's really helpful to look at something and say, that's not my idea, but I'm going to try and see how I can adopt it to my problem. And third, uh, and I, I referenced this earlier, we need to develop uh, leadership and emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have to have people who work for us, trust us, and hopefully we need inspire them to do what we really meant rather than what's just asked. Um, it, it's not enough to manage people. It's enough to make them really want to excel. And that requires leadership rather than just management. And, and colleges also tend to be highly relational, collaborative institutions. Uh, and so being able to work effectively with other people is especially important into this industry as opposed to other industries. I don't think it's ever unimportant, but I think it's especially important in this industry. Can you think of any stories that stand out to you when you think about how you may have developed one of those skills over the course of your career? My institution's located in a small town, and we were building a new art center on campus. And it was our property and our building, and um, it met Zonio, and we could have just built it. But instead, we spent six, seven months um, hosting meeting at my pre- meetings for the community at my president's house, just educating the, the, the other people in the town about why we needed this structure, uh, sharing conceptual design plans with them and getting their feedback. So they were concerned with parking and construction noise. And, and then we accurately conveyed why we needed it, but they were very interested in neighbors and how disruptive it would be. And we could have just gone ahead and done it and then fought them, possibly, at planning. And instead, we had people who understood why we did it, really appreciated the outreach, and in an area of social media that makes a big difference, not just for our ability to build it in town, but for all of their friends and neighbors to understand that we are being thoughtful about what we're doing and and trying to balance multiple needs. And that certainly, that message gets out to prospective students and current students. And, and it certainly helps our relationships in town and our, our town gown um, cordiality. I love that example. And that's not something instead of just building a factory out in the middle of a field where you just you design it, you build it, and there's nobody around to worry about it. David, in every higher education institution, the role of C- the CBO is a little bit unique. So could you tell us what you feel makes your role at Denison special or different? You know, I think for me, it's, it's human resources. You mentioned... You know, are, are we promoting leadership? And here, it's not uncommon for schools of my size, for the vice president of finance and administration or vice president of finance and management to have HR report up to them. That's not unique. But I think what we're doing here is having HR try to make sure that we have engagement across the whole spectrum of employees, not just, not just that faculty are engaged with students, but we provide opportunities for training and appreciation to our ground staff and our custodians. So I know that our ground staff, if they see people walking around to look a little lost, they'll stop mowing and ask them if they can help them. And that makes a big deal to prospective families and students. And we have given all of our custodians a gatekeeper training. So with and they're assigned to a specific building. And we did that, we did that deliberately. So that their additional set of eyes on students. And if they notice students in lounges who they've known for six months suddenly have a change in behavior as a precursor to some mental stress that they'll notify the, the they'll talk to the student or they'll notify counseling services so we can get on it right away and 
that starts with making sure that those people understand that their role here is very important and matters. And I think that is something unique we're doing, that we're trying to make sure that everybody who works here understands that our success depends on all of our collective efforts. And it's not just any particular group of employees who matter and the other people are just here to do work and leave. Okay, now the most fun question of the show. Thinking back on your time as a CBO, could you tell us maybe about a lesson that you had to learn the hard way? We won't call this a failure. We'll call this a learning. <laughs> wow, I was I was hoping we'd run out of time for that one. <laughs> Everyone does. Yeah, yeah I bet. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I've had anything catastrophic or else I'd not be talking to you. But yeah, there's certainly a, there's certainly a number of things I would do differently, but I can I can come up with one. Um, I, I'd say the, the the biggest one is underestimating the importance of communication and exhaustion after pace of of change. Uh, this was a couple years ago, and we'd been rolling out several new academic programs to en- enhance and uh, change our curriculum, and that created a lot of angst on campus. Just change is difficult and people get emotionally exhausted, even if it's the right decision and they've been involved. Just change is hard. Simultaneously, in my area, we've been appropriate looking looking at ways to combine operations for more efficiency. But cost control is very important. You always have to re-examine what you're doing and find more efficient ways to do it because otherwise inflation will eat you alive. Uh, unfortunately, we underestimated the impact of how all the p- preceding curricular changes and how much communication was now necessary to understand and support combining some back office. I, I think that if we'd if we'd done it in isolation, we would have communicated adequately and people would have understood it. But given people had just undergone a lot of other change, they were exhausted and needed more communication than they normally would, and we underestimated that. And so we tried to roll it out and um, just got a lot of pushback, and we had to reverse it which was difficult. It was the right thing to do, but that was difficult. And so I would say it's, if you over-communicate and express your case a little too much, there's not much downside to that. But if you think you're just doing enough, um, you probably want to do more because the, the downside to not communicating enough is having to reverse it. That's a great example. Thank you for being brave and sharing that, David. <laughs> sure. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing your insights and a little bit of your experience with our listeners today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. You can find out more about David and today's episode by visiting the education section, then click podcasts of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks and Apple Podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of David and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. CBO Speaks.